From somewhere deep in the cloud and the corners of the earth, this is the Killing It Podcast with a focus on helping you make sense and dollars of all things IT with your hosts, Dave Sobel, Ryan Morris, and Carl Polichuk. Welcome, everybody, to episode 173 of the Killing It podcast. I'm Carl, joined today, as always, by Ryan and Dave. And the show is unique. I think Ryan picked 100% of the topics today. I know. For the for you behind-the-scenes interested people, that's, we all throw topics in, and it's, it varies who's doing it. But Ryan had all the picks today. <laughs> I have I have very many opinions and I just can't wait to share them. Well, I'm going to ask the first opinion then. <laughs> Would you rather fight a one horse-sized duck or a hundred duck-sized horses? <laughs> wow. <laughs> one horse-sized duck. Duck. Or a hundred duck-sized horses. I, I don't know. It seems to me... Ducks are easier to uh, outwit, even if they're the size of a horse. So uh, for me, it'd be the one duck-sized horse. I would just paddle a little farther down the river, and then they would fly 10 feet away, and then I'd paddle some more, and they'd fly 10 feet away. See, as, as a golfer, if this question were a horse-sized goose, oh, no. I would definitely take the 100 like goose-sized horses, because <laughs> the goose on the golf course, man, those things are mean. Those things will chase you down and, and bite you on the, on the leg. Uh, the duck, not afraid of them, but I will say, deep logic. We were actually having this conversation, myself and my eight-year-old grandson, uh, we, we were having this conversation in the, in the context, not of fighting horses, but of who do you think would win <laughs> between a soccer game that was just messy and Ronaldo against 25 eight-year-olds. Who do you think would win? And we, we got to the point of, you know what? Eventually there's a number where it doesn't matter how much bigger and better you are, just the swarm effect will defeat them. So we figured that at a hundred eight-year-olds, even Ronaldo and Messi could not score. See, and it's funny because your logic fits to mine. It fits to mine. So, and clearly, I have spent way too much time on the PlayStation playing Horizon Forbidden West because immediately <laughs> I'm putting this into the context of all right. If there's a pack that I'm trying to take down with the bow arrow, that's much more difficult than a single large target with multiple weak spots. I like clearly have been. And so my immediate thought is, is oh, one one horse sized duck way easier to take down, less ammo, can't get flying. Like, oh yeah, I have been playing way too much PlayStation on this one. Uh, great game, by the way. Really, really great game. The, the audience is thinking, this is what these people have actually considered. Like, they've had opinions on this, and they brought them to the table. Uh, please, please, stick with us for the rest of the podcast. <laughs> we have opinions on everything. You want an opinion? We've got yeah. opinions. It doesn't have to be interesting or important. Or useful either. Like, or useful. These are not necessarily all useful opinions, but we exactly. do. Exactly. Well, did you know Cisco helps manage services providers directly? You know about the Cisco Partner Program? Focused on helping partners combine managed services expertise and service creation with innovative Cisco technology and proven go-to-market resources, there's a program option for you. With provider pricing, MDF, and marketing resources coupled with Cisco's leading technologies, including Meraki, Duo, and Umbrella, learn more with the link right in the show notes. 
Our first topic today is about a couple of new acts that were uh, passed in Europe. One is the Digital Markets Act, DMA, and the other is the Digital Services Act, DSA, uh, both intended to a punish large tech companies for being large and also fill some gaps of uh, uh, enforcement with GDPR, which I guess it wasn't big and cumbersome enough, so they needed to fill in some gaps. But basically, uh, it put some requirements on these large tech companies to do things like enforce some of the laws and to fight illegal activity on their platforms. And the penalties, uh, as the EU tends to do, are gargantuan, like could be 10% of their revenue, which is unbelievable. But um, the, the basic idea is, hey, you guys exist in an international arena. So you have, you can't just say, well, we're just going to go where the, the taxes are good and ignore the rest. You have to participate in that community. And that includes enforcing some of the laws and making sure that your, the people who use your platform are not abusing our culture. Thoughts? I, I love watching European politics and then play this all out because uh, if they are really good at this, <laughs> they have figured out uh, certain details about making laws work. Uh, I think there's a set, I want to acknowledge there's a healthy space, whether how effective or how well crafted certain parts of them are, but they take on a particular problem. They define it reasonably well to the point where you can clearly understand the problem they are trying to solve. And most importantly, they make the penalty hurt. And they want the, the penalty to hurt because you do not want someone to look at violating a law and simply say, no problem, I will happily pay the fine on that because I can make more money and include that fine in my cost of operations. Uh, we're talking about this just as a bunch of allegations around Uber and their behavior in the past comes out. That's important to look at because they were analyzing the penalties for doing something as close to zero. And so they would do it anyway to drive business growth. This is intentionally decide, designed to offset that. And it's why it's so smart. Now, Again, we can have some discussion around whether or not they can truly regulate this. If it's effective, will it have the results out? But at least structurally, you look at the Europeans and like, they got a lot right. Well, and, and I think that you're on to the interesting mass market reaction, right? Uh, you can tell a lot by how uh, about a piece of legislation based on how the majority of people react to it. If the majority reaction is... I don't agree with your approach. I don't agree that that's a problem. It doesn't need regulation. I don't agree with the way that you've defined the the, the certain violations or the terminology. If if it's a if it's an internal technical question, then then the the discussion is still ongoing. When the when the mass market reaction arrives at the point of, yeah, that's nice, but are you really going to be able to enforce it? What that says to me is, so we all read that stuff and went. Uh-huh, that's pretty close. That's actually on target. And if it can be enforced, then it's going to have the intended effect. And now, uh, if you read anything about DMA and DSA in the last two weeks, I, I swear 99% of the articles say they got a piece of legislation. The question is, can they enforce it? And my answer to you is uh, hide and watch. 
right? Like there's a there's a different way of saying that these days. But um, the, if you don't think that this is going to have an impact on not only the way services are operated, but in essential elements of product design, then you're going to be the first one who tests it and finds out. Now, there, there's one line of thinking that says, fine, I'll just run a European version of my offering and then an everywhere else. And that donut hole strategy will allow me to comply without materially changing my offer. And then you look at somebody like Apple who says, okay, fine, we agree, we'll put a USB-C plug in an iPhone in the, in the next model. They were adamant that was never going to happen. They were hell bent they would never agree with that. And even they, with all of their money and market clout, are going to comply. I think that's the next step. And what's interesting, uh, for a, a deeper conversation than we have time here for, these are by and large, U.S. tech giants whose behavior is being altered in the market by European regulation, not by U.S. regulation. Hmm. Well, it's also the case that, um, you know, when I think about Apple uh, or Facebook or anybody not wanting to have two versions of their own software, I mean, you think about uh, the reality is it's easier for textbook makers to make one set of textbooks and then uh, comply with everybody. So that gives certain users, certain buyers of textbooks, uh, uh, kind of uh, more influence than they ought to have <laughs> in that market. Um, the question is, is Europe becoming the de facto um, uh, arbiter of what's good and right and wrong on this front simply because in order to be compliant in Europe, uh, everybody's changing their product for all of the free world. It might be different in China, it might be different in Russia, uh, but uh, certainly in North America, we're gonna get the European version of Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and so forth. Well, and especially because the US isn't weighing in. When, when, when at the well, federal level, we I mean, don't really have, we don't have laws, we're not bothering, we're not bothering to and participate. to your point that <laughs> we do have some laws, but if it's literally a marketing decibel, it's, it's like, oh, uh, do, as much money as we spent on lost paper clips last year, that's the fine. Okay, let's just ignore the law because it's nothing. It doesn't mean anything. Right. Yep. I mean, and, and especially, yeah, that, that's really where it comes down to is, is when you look at it and go like, well, there's nearly nothing at U.S. and the laws don't matter, but we want to do business in Europe. So we might as well, we'll just go be compliant with that and we'll get the general benefit and a single product line of doing well enough in a market that clearly apparently doesn't care about those things. You know, and by the way, that's that's a totally rational way to approach this. Well, and, and I do think that one of the particular points of analysis and enforcement here that, that I find interesting and encouraging is limiting these mega tech platforms' abilities to preference their own offerings at the expense of any of the smaller offers that might leverage their platform. I, I think it is high time for us to get back to a place where technology enables an open competition market and not 
mega platforms who can squoosh anybody who decides to come in and try to compete with them. I, I'm, I'm a capitalist and an entrepreneur, and, and I absolutely believe that it's too much control in too few hands at this point, and this might actually reopen the gates of competition slash innovation. It's also interesting a couple of times. I think Apple was hit particularly hard with this. A couple of the regulations are that you can't uh, prefer your products over the competition and you can't prevent people from removing pre-installed software. So that, that affects the, the Google operating system some, but it affects Apple a lot. And the question is, will they fight that in the US or will they fight it in Europe or will they say, well, we lost in Europe, so now we're just going to apply the same rules in the US? If there's one thing where you say, well, that, that might be something that changes their infrastructure so much that they might actually have two different sets of software for the US and Europe. Yeah. Well, we'll we, this, will, this will be interesting to watch out. And I will remind any small player, like, you know, you, you may think you're a small technology player. Like, these guys all have cloud offerings. They have all, they're, they're invested in building out their infrastructure. Oh, and by the way, these are generally the devices of choice in many cases for all of mobile, when you put in Apple and, and Google, um, you know, Microsoft is gonna be a part of this too, even though their offering looks a little bit different. So don't think this doesn't apply, but we're out of time. So I'm gonna move us to topic number two. This is, I wanna highlight an article in Protocol uh, where the headline almost tells the entire story. Cybersecurity teams need to fill jobs and improve diversity. They'll need entry-level roles to get there. And this is a walkthrough of some of the challenges of hiring right now and quote-unquote labor shortages. And what I wanted to dive, what interested me most here was the angle of I've been thinking a lot about what do entry-level jobs look like and are we giving opportunities for people to train on the job in at, you know through apprenticeships through proper entry level jobs and when you read job listings everything looks for a dream candidate that does not exist when you know you don't have enough cybersecurity talent out there why are you looking for the talent that isn't out there you may have to build it uh, that was where i was coming from on this right ryan you i'm going to throw it to you cuz this was an article you threw out there what was your kind of highlight here See, I went where you went from just a, a market quantity point of view. The market will supply whatever resources are in demand and are lucrative to, to provide. Uh, the fact that there are not enough cybersecurity professionals is not an indication that we don't have a need or an uh, or or a crying pain point that we have around uh, all the the blossoming cybersecurity threats. It's a question of are we actually rewarding entry level opportunities in that field such that we can build the broad enough base of the pyramid that enough of those entry level people can now become mid-level and then senior ninja level technicians. I, I think it's, I, I don't think it's exactly a problem of economics. I think it's a problem of hero syndrome. Right? I have spent enough years in and around the cybersecurity industry. I know enough white hat and black hat professionals to know that these are not people who do what they do 
to monitor blinking lights or to apply patch protocols or to run a macro to test a series of configurations. What they're here for is to have that late night all in hair on fire experience where they can come out and say, did you see how I saved the world? Now, A, God bless these people for being that interested and that capable of going that direction, but I can absolutely guarantee you that is not the job description for the average network technician. And because that's not what's interesting, there's this, there's this imbalance of, I only want to do ninja level things. I don't ever want to go there. Well, A, that's creating a moat between the geniuses and the mass market, which is great for their salary and career prospects. But B, it is absolutely preventing people from getting in at the grunt level and growing up. And we now have, I don't, every cybersecurity expert I have talked to in the past 24 months has said, the problem is not the edge case of the rocket science attack and vulnerability. The problem is we just don't have broad enough adoption of basic dumb stuff that anybody could have applied because there's just not enough humans to do the work. Well, it's interesting. This problem has been growing for quite a while, sort of I think it became uh, visible to those of us in the industry about four or five years ago. Since then, we filled 0.1 of the 3.1 uh, million jobs that we're, we're looking for. So we still have 2.7 million vacancies. But literally, as, as recently as yesterday, I got an email from a friend that said, hey, my friend just graduated has a bachelor's degree in C++ with an emphasis on cybersecurity and can't find a job. It's like, are you kidding me? <laughs> There's only wow. 2.7 million jobs with your name on them. But I'm reminded of the meme that you see on Facebook all the time is where somebody says, oh, this requires, you know, 10 years of experience in this language. And then this other guy says, well, I invented that language six years ago. So I don't have 10 years of experience, right? That's the kind of mentality that we have in hiring. And I think we need to, the industry needs to look to engineering as an example. In engineering, you look for people when they are freshmen and sophomores and you sign them up and you give them uh, some money for a scholarship with a guarantee that if they graduate with a B or above, they've got a job and then uh, they don't have a real job. What they have is six to eight months of solid training in the actual job you need them to do. Uh, and that way, people literally start building their career when they're 20. And by the time that they graduate, they've got a job, they've got a path, they've got enough training, and it's focused in the right direction. Yes, it's a long-term solution, but you know, it's going to take a while to fill the 2.7 million jobs that are open. Well, I, so I'm, and I, this is funny because I actually have like a story from my own MSP that I think about on this particular story. Uh, I hired a summer intern through a county program that was literally designed to pay these pay people in, in high school and help them find a job for the summer. And that job we created a summer internship and it was a paid position, right? So this person was paid and we gave them the task of like backup checks and patch checks. 
Like that was that was the, because as Carl writes us, this is something that you can completely take an operating procedure and you can say you will just go check right. this thing and do it. And if you think about that kind of work, it was the kind of work that engineers like hated, right? Like they hated that stuff. This intern, she loved this job. She loved this job because it was her favorite thing to not only check the checkbox that they were taking care of, but also the occasional time when she would find a problem and be able to take it to a senior engineer with, I found this problem that I now need you to fix, right? <laughs> Which was a massive victory. And that person who was, was a summer intern for me ended up having a two year career at my MSP uh, doing, you know, ever slightly increasing technical jobs and you could completely see, should she have wanted to, and she didn't at the time, but she could have very much converted that into a professional career in technology. She went a different direction with sort of in, in related in med medical field and not as a doctor, but that initial investment, there are programs available to help people link to this. And it also just takes some creativity on the part of business owners who are willing to think more broadly versus the, well, I need this exact perfect person and I will instantly plug them into my org and they've solved. You can build these yourselves. And I don't think we're spending enough time as business owners being creative. And those major companies, they need to look at this as being part of an industry that needs their help rather than saying, when I need a person, I will put out a job application, I'll put out a job posting, and I will get the resumes and I will pick somebody and they will solve my problem. That mentality is what got us where we are right now. <laughs> yeah, because if those people existed, then this wouldn't be a problem at the industry level. Uh, I look at all of the industry spaces where we spend a lot of time, right? Cybersecurity, uh, business applications, financial applications, engineering and manufacturing. Every single one of those industries is complaining about this same problem. They are all saying, oh, there's just not enough humans who have these advanced technical skills. Well, guess what? None of us are born with advanced technical skills. The, the way I always like to say it is nobody was born knowing how to water ski. The first time you ever tried, you fell on your face and you swallowed a lot of lake. And you need that same career trajectory in complex technical environments, or you will never manufacture enough quantity to cover all of the simple stuff. Look at you with the lake segment. I know, man. It is, uh, it, it, the, and this next one, we're going to bring you around to topic number three, because uh, I find that this is one of those where a lot of people have a tendency to say, not my problem, I didn't cause this, and, and I don't think it's the first problem, but it's one that I think is coming onto the radar of technology professionals in a very big way, right? I sit here today uh, outside, it is 101 degrees in the summertime in a place where it normally is not 101 degrees, and I don't think that it's hotter outside today than normal because there are so many data centers, but I do believe that the fact that the climate is getting warm Warmer is going to cause a lot of uncomfortable attention on those of us who build data centers and hyperscale especially. Right? I don't know how many years ago it was you guys learned in data center design and operations the pivotal role of HVAC in high performance computing. Like the first time they taught me that when I was a sales kid, I was like, 
who cares about the HVAC? I'm selling servers. I'm selling rocket science. Why do I care? Well, you care because silicon degrades at high temperature and it also produces phenomenal amounts of heat. Well, guess what? These two trends are gonna come together in a way that will have direct economic and performance impacts on the technology industry. So the, the article that we're linking to, again, I find it very interesting, the way that they are looking at not only the temperature and the production of, the consumption of energy and everything in data centers, but also the consumption of water, right? Uh, what do you guys think about the environmental impact of data center infrastructure. Well, I was immediately drawn to the fact that uh, before water, which they use for cooling, was abundant and cheap. And the key element to this is that now pricing is changing and thus they're having to bring that into the operations. There's tons of operational lessons in there, right? In terms of not assuming all costs will be the same, you know, by the way, we're in the summer of 2022 and prices are all over the place and different things. You can't always assume they will stay the same same way. And I, th I thought a lot about the fact that, you know, these something that was considered simple and part of the process is now becoming complicated. And again, you might they, these are the same organizations that at scale are going to be looking at this problem and saying, well, perhaps we can adjust put some money in early to start looking at solutions to help offset that problem because over a very long period of time with continued increases, that becomes very difficult versus you might put in some money up front to start working on different solutions, help bring the price back down again by addressing the availability and that may involve investments in climate. And that was where I was looking, saying like, it's smart for these operations people to start looking at it that way. I hope they take the next step of saying, perhaps we need to be investing in our own future, particularly where the core of literally of a data center business, you need to keep that price managed over theoretically infinity. Right, and a couple of points, but first let me just throw out a kudo to Ryan, who is Mr. Movie Buff for not bringing up Chinatown. <laughs> Water has been an issue, at least in California, for at least 150 years. And so uh, it's not going away anytime soon. I will point out, you know, one of the things that has to happen with data centers is they, they have to be local. You know, it doesn't make any sense for me to, uh, you know, think about eBay. eBay is the perfect example. They put their servers where big populations are so that there's no delay. So I don't lose a bid simply because I was uh, a second short. Same thing with financial transactions, right? You put the data centers where there's large populations so that trades can be made very, very quickly. Um, the other thing I'd point out is that um, Las Vegas is oddly enough, a tremendous example about saving water on a very large scale. Uh, we link to another article here. Uh, Las Vegas has reduced their water consumption by 26% in the last 10 years while growing their population 750,000. Uh, one of my favorite quotes in that article is about how they are literally recycling everything at the city-wide level. You could open up every valve, every faucet, every shower uh, in every hotel in Las Vegas, and you would not lose any water because it all gets recycled. 
That is freaking amazing, but it demonstrates that we can do things on a very big scale if we put our mind to it. In the case of Las Vegas, it's literally survival. We will cease to exist if we continue to use water at the rate that we grow. Uh, data centers need to realize that they're in the same situation because they can't move. Like data centers can't all go to Greenland because it's nice and cold, right? Microsoft can only put so many at the bottom of the ocean as we covered a couple of years ago. Um, so but it's good that they're thinking about these things, but it has to be a problem at every city level, at every county level, at every regional level. See, I think that's an excellent point, right? We spend a lot of time in this industry thinking about it's virtual and the cloud and it's out there and it's not physical infrastructure. No, it's just physical infrastructure that somebody else owns and manages someplace else, but it still exists in reality. Uh, we lived through a series of this about, I don't know, 10, 12 years ago where this industry tried a very big push around green initiatives and selling the, the value of environmental consciousness. And it fundamentally flopped because not everybody bought the environmental message. I want to re-spin this and say this is not a question of environmentalism. This is a question of basic business economics and the availability of core resources that you need to do your job, right? Now, if you've been watching the news, uh, Lake Mead, just outside of Las Vegas, uh, just this morning there was a picture of a World War II era landing craft that was sunk out there in the lake back then for the purposes of training exercises. And it is now surface side. And it's a very interesting curiosity. And you can see a lot of things that are going on. Uh, if a mega population center is running low on water and they have to choose, will we use our water for human consumption or will we do it to run a data center? I don't think any of us in the IT department are persuasive enough to convince them to allow many people to die of thirst while we continue to have very low latency on our, on our server response times. I think that this is an existential question in a short order. Water, heat, electricity, and that interconnection of data center infrastructure, we got to start paying attention to that as an industry. Well, and that electricity is a huge piece of it because one other option is, look, have a closed system and then just air condition it. Well, that's a very expensive electric bill. Well, by the way, as someone who was burned by trying to sell green IT back in, uh, you know, that, that that did not work. But but there's sort of two major flaws I look at. The first of all, I thought green IT was a little too early, but more importantly, was trying to be mass management where oftentimes the true impact we can make is in these centralized locations like data centers again power plants like these when you invest there we know we know that for example most of the pollution comes from a measurable group of people that can be managed versus every single human being trying to reduce their their bit by a lot the flaws of earlier efforts was trying to do wide adoption. What's interesting here is data center providers that are focused specifically on their own economics, making changes. I'm more hopeful. And I would then say the opportunity is in these groups, identifying the groups that need to be focusing on it, where the impact is substantial. Yeah, by the way, just one last quick note. If you are ever going to sell a server and you do not also sell the HVAC and the cooling and all that with it, shame on you. You are leaving money on the table. Money on the table. 
Very good. With that final note, that will bring an end to episode 173 of the Killing It Podcast. Thanks for tuning in to the Killing It Podcast. Please share with your friends and tell everyone to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, and all the podcast places. Join us next week and help us keep killing it in the technology business.